We're going to read from the book of Titus now. This is the last in our series in Titus, and we're going to be reading from Titus chapter 3, verse 9. Titus 3, verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way, and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good, in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Well, good morning, everyone. Oh, thank you. <laughs> good morning to all those who are watching online as well. Thank you for joining us. Technology can be uh, very helpful in times like these, can't it? It's my privilege today to... Uh, bring you the message from the final chapter, uh, final section of Titus, Titus chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles open, uh, please uh, follow with me. And uh, if you are able to watch the screen, you can do the same. Whenever we open the Bible, we should have expectations. We should expect that God will be speaking to us through his word. We should expect that the Bible will teach us. It will correct us and guide us. We should also expect to be challenged, to be in some ways made uncomfortable by what we read. So as we open God's word, let us ask, his, uh, ask him to direct our thinking. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you as your people. We recognise who you are and how in your mercy you saved us from our sin. As we open your word, may your Holy Spirit teach us, rebuke us, correct and train us to be more like Jesus so that we can be equipped to undertake every good work in your name. Amen. Well, this is the last in a series of seven uh, on the book of Titus. Uh, very shortly, we'll be delving into the Old Testament to have a look at uh, another uh, prophet, uh, but that will be something we start next week. Nearly 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote this letter to a young man whom he left in charge of a church on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean. He had specific job to do and Paul was writing to him and giving him instructions uh, as to how to conduct church in Crete. Now, Crete was a, a terrible place. We've, we've heard in the past that full of liars and cheats, a bit like Sydney society, isn't it? 
So Titus had an uphill battle. So you might say to me, Peter, why are we looking at a book uh, or a letter that was written 2,000 years ago? And what relevance does it have to us today? Well, I want to suggest to you that not only does it have historical relevance in the context within which it was written, but also present relevance. But not only that, eternal relevance. For whenever we open God's word, we should have the expectation that he's speaking to us. His message is cutting edge. It's countercultural. No wonder Christians get into disputes with people in society. For our values and our views of the world are quite different. We are his children and we are his children by the grace of God. Paul opens and closes a lot of his letters with that very sort of statement, doesn't he? In this letter, in his final remarks in verse 15, he says, grace be with you all. At the beginning of the letter, he says, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Saviour. Paul is driven by the knowledge of God's grace to him. Titus too knew of God's grace through his relationship with God because of what Jesus did. When we open our Bibles, we expose ourselves to the influence of God's word and we understand what's in it through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's an enormous thing to think how God has given us grace through his mercy to be able to be reconciled with him. Formerly, we were his enemies, but now we are his family. So how does the word of God impact upon us? And how does it change the way we do things? After hearing God's word, how committed are we to changing those things in our lives that need change, that are pointed out to us through the reading of God's word? These are important questions, aren't they, for us as Christians living in this place? Because they get to the very heart of what it is that we have committed to be part of God's family. Our commitment to being Christians ought to change who we are, what we think, what we do and what we say. Our commitment to our God ought to shape our character. So how does that play out in our lives? What does it look like for you and for me? Well, for starters, we're called to be part of a community of believers. And being a community means that we must interact with each other, although that's fairly difficult when you have a mask on and you're confined to a seat. However, in this interaction, we need to be self-controlled, upright, need to be holy and disciplined. And these are the sorts of behaviours that we're not very good at, are we? We're called to be like, what we're called to be like doesn't come naturally. 
We need to learn how to interact with each other in this new community of believers because we don't know intuitively how to do it. We need instruction. We need teaching. We need practice if we are to behave the way God wants us. We need to spend some serious time learning from his word and also from each other as to how to practice being godly. While these instructions to Titus relate to the situation that he found himself in in Crete, we can draw principles from this letter that are applicable to us as Christians today. And I want to um, bring these principles out under three headings. The first of them is that the people of God are to seek unity. In, the, in verse 8 uh, and the verses before that, Paul points to the saving grace of God in that he saved us not because of the righteous things we'd done. He saved us through his goodness and mercy and the washing and rebirth and renewal of our lives by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who God poured out generously through his son Jesus. This saving this salvation has made us heirs, having the hope of eternal life. And this is the thing that unifies, unifies us. We are under God's grace together. We are to be obedient, ready to do whatever's good. We're to be peaceable, considerate and gentle. But like all human beings, we often lose sight of the direction of our actions, don't we? In dealing with this, Paul points out several actions that need to be addressed when they occur. He warns against having unprofitable, useless and foolish controversies, arguments and quarrels about genealogies, about the law. I was uh, talking uh, in our Bible study group, Monday Bible study group last week, and uh, in doing some research, there are uh, some um, denominations, some religions that spend all of their time pretty well arguing about nuances of the law. They can't agree on how many rules they've got in their, in their um, code of, code of uh, behaviour. But at last count, we think there's about 613, 614. But they're still arguing about that. Now, what's the point? That's what, that's what Paul is saying here. What's the point? If we get diverted into doing that sort of thing, we're missing the main game. I had a discussion with a Christian fellow at the Hawkesbury Show some years ago. He came up to me and said, um, what are you telling people? And I explained using the the model of two ways to live. And he said, well, you're not emphasising hell and judgment enough. I thought, well, okay, fair call. What? And then he started arguing with me about which version of the Bible ought to be used. Now, to me, that may be a, an example of being diverted from the main game. 
I'm sure that you might have instances where that sort of thing has, uh, has happened to you. In the Christian church, there were members who were spending time engaging in discussions that were leading nowhere. They were not fruitful. They were unprofitable. They were causing division. Whole families were divided. There were being disputes and all sorts of problems. And that kind of behaviour in Christian communities, all it does is create dissension, pitting one Christian against another. It distorts the gospel and does nothing to bring glory to God, let alone deal with the proper relationships that we should be having amongst ourselves. Titus is instructed by Paul to deal with this matter promptly. Don't let it fester. Deal with it. Warn the person. If they don't take any notice, warn them again. And if they don't take any notice, have nothing to do with them. Now, the warning is not punitive. It's more about correction. Correcting them in the, in the proper understanding of scripture with a view to bringing them back into fellowship not with a view to ostracizing them but with the, the view to getting their thinking properly aligned with the bible i'm a, a great fan of charles haddon spurgeon a tremendous baptist minister who preached in london in the um 1800s, I think it was. He uh, often spoke to audiences of up to 5,000 people. He must have had a very, very good voice, deep voice. Sue and I had the privilege of not going into, but going past the Metropolitan Tabernacle uh, in London, uh, southeast London, when we were over there a few years ago. He has this to say. He talks about the foolish questions, but then he says this. There are, however, some questions which are the reverse of foolish. Questions which we must not avoid, but we must fairly and honestly meet. Here are some of them. Do I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I renewed in the spirit of my mind? Am I walking not after the flesh, but after the spirit? Am I growing in grace? Does my conversation adorn the doctrine of God my saviour? Am I looking forward to the coming of the Lord and watching as a servant should, who expects his master? What more can I do for Jesus? He says that such inquiries as these are urgently needed. They urgently demand our attention. For if we have been given to foolishness in our arguments, we ought to turn that time to our and our critical abilities to service questions that are more profitable. He ends by saying, let us be peacemakers and endeavour to lead others both by our, by our precept and example to do good. So as a church, 
we're to have conversations amongst ourselves that promote unity, not disunity. The second point I want to make is that as a people of God, we're to establish right relationships. So we have unity and now right relationships. Paul's not a lone ranger of the gospel. Who remembers the lone ranger way back in, oh, a few of you, yeah. For those of you who weren't around in the 60s, not the 1860s, the 1960s, you probably wouldn't remember. But Paul's not a lone ranger. He doesn't go around the business of preaching the gospel by himself. He relies upon a team, a team of people whom he calls, for, uh, in many places, fellow workers in the gospel. I call them his gospel-spreading helpers. And his team from time to time, and I did a count of these, I, I finished at 26. If you look through Acts and you look through Paul's letters, uh, you'll see that he specifically refers to people who are his co-workers or who are helpers. The ones that come up more frequently are people like Silas and Barnabas, the encourager, Timothy, his apprentice, Luke, John Mark, and Tychicus, whom we who read, read in here. If you look through it, Paul is not a lone ranger. He relies upon the relationships that he has with people in order to further the gospel. And here he does Titus, uh, instructs Titus to do the best to join him. He craves that relationship with his co-workers at a place called Nicopolis. Now there isn't, a, if you look up um, uh, the Greek mainland, you won't find the, uh, the, the town. But it's in an area which we believe is in the south of Greece by the water. And Paul is wintering there. Now, who wouldn't want to winter in the south of Greece by the water? It must be a tremendous place. And I can identify with that. Now, in these verses, we see how much Paul thrives on companionship. He often mentions how he looks forward to the fellowship. It's a tough time being a gospel preacher in his day, as it would be today. He needs people around him to encourage him, to support him. To, uh, to do the work with him. And my question is, how much do we yearn to be surrounded by other believers? How, much do we, how important is it for us to seek the company of other Christians? After all, we're the family of God and we're going to be together for a long, long time. If you look around the room, get used to these people. They're going to be in heaven with you. As a church, we're to have conversations that promote unity and as a people of God, we're to establish right relationships. The third point I want to make is that as a people of God, we want to maintain commitment to each other. Unity, relationships, and now commitment. The last part of uh, these verses, 13 to 15, not only does Paul seek the fellowship of other believers, but he keeps an active eye out for what else is going on around him, what his co-workers are doing, what their needs are. He mentions Zenos. He mentions Apollos. Uh, he mentions the... Um, Tychicus and Artemis. He needs to know, and he does know, what they're doing. Keeps, keeps in touch with them. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I receive emails uh, through the week, and one of the emails I received was from Rick, who's, who's at home, not feeling the best at the moment. Now, apart from talking about upcoming events and, and, and the, the routine stuff, there was a letter attached to that from Ron and Michelle Jennings. Anyone read that letter? Yeah? Few? I encourage you to do that. Ron and Michelle are missionaries who have been sent out from this Western Sydney area nearly 40 years ago, Chris, um, to work in the Philippines. And their mission was to first of all take an oral language and make it a written language and from the written language to translate the Bible. Now it's only taken them 40 years and now they're in a situation where they have another set of needs. With technology, smartphones and the like, you're able to get apps. Back in the day when I was younger, we called them programs, but now they're apps. Now, one of the apps that they can get is to put the whole of the translated Bible that they've worked on into an application so that the, that the Bible workers in, in uh, Mindanao, Mindanao, I think is right, can take the Bible with them. These phones obviously will need to have a charging system, so they've got a little solar, solar battery system. Um, and that's, this, this is a, a, a project that they've got going at the moment. Now, they have 21 churches with Bible teachers in each of them, and their mission is to equip each of those Bible teachers, and there are more than one in some churches, with a smartphone, not high-powered smartphones, they're a, they're a low-tech a low smartphone, with a solar charger, so that they're able to go and preach the gospel. Now, I don't believe in coincidence. I believe in God's perfect timing. We're looking at this today. The email came earlier this week. To me, it's God saying, here's an opportunity for you to support the gospel in the Philippines. If you want to know the cost, it's about $240 Australian to equip each and every uh, Bible teacher. There are churches who support the, uh, the Jennings uh, throughout Australia. Some of them have already raised money to, to put towards this project. If you're interested in contributing to it, you can talk to Chris afterwards. Is God issuing us a challenge, and this is only one challenge, to look after the needs of our fellow workers? I think he is. If we're up to the challenge to see that our brother and sister Ron and Michelle have what they need to do God's work, then let us respond. They have asked us to pray for them and also pray to show them a way to fulfil this need. In his final word to Titus, Paul reminds him that he's a believer by the grace of God. He reminds him that he's in a relationship with the Father and with fellow believers because of God's grace. And we're in a similar relationship with God through the grace he showed us in sending his son. The impact of that on our lives ought to be evident. People should see, people in this room here should see the impact of the knowledge of the grace of God in our lives, in our actions and what we do. We need to be bold and humble 
which is a pretty interesting combination. We need to do good, to look after each other, to use whatever God has given us to meet the needs of those around us, especially those of the household of faith. Each and every one of us is in that category. And to do this is to be true to our salvation and to ignore this. Well, it's possible that we be insulting God. He has given us the best thing anyone could ever give us. So as people of God, we're to seek unity, not disunity. We're to establish relationships with each other and we're to maintain commitment to look after each other and to further the gospel. So let us be a people of God in this place as we seek to do what is good and to lead productive lives. Please pray with me. Father God, your graciousness towards us is overwhelming. We are undeserving of your forgiveness. Thank you for providing us with a way back into a relationship with you through your Son. Your word continues to confront and challenge us to become more like Jesus. Help us to change the way that we are. Help us to be more focused on others. Help us to do good and to become more and more like Jesus each and every day. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Saviour and our Lord. Amen.